Welcome again to another Commonwealth Magazine podcast episode in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member at Transit Matters. I'm your co-host, Jim Aloisi. I'm also a board member at Transit Matters. We're joined again in part two of our two-part series um, where we've been having a discussion with Fred Salvucci, former Transportation Secretary, uh, 12-year Transportation Secretary for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Thanks for being here with us, Fred. And and dear listeners, uh, you'll know that the riff that we're using for this two-part podcast series is uh, Victoria De Sica's movie Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And uh, in the first podcast, we talked about some topics that dealt with yesterday and a few about today. So we're going to start again by talking about issues that are, that are hot topics today. And Fred, I know you've been um, outspoken and active on one that's extremely important um, to, to the region, not just to the city uh, of Boston and the city of Cambridge, but to the region out to Worcester. And that's the future of Alston Landing and the potential to build a new station there, the so-called West Station. Um, I've written about this in Commonwealth Magazine recently, and I noticed today in the Globe uh, columnist Dante Ramos wrote about it, and sort of we're all aligned in our thinking that this is a sort of generational opportunity to get um, a more sustainable mobility ecosystem put into place. I wanted to get your your views on what's happening and 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 how you see this unfolding. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, I mean, the you have to go back to yesterday a little bit. Uh, when the turnpike was built, uh, they very badly in many ways in terms of the way they treated people uh, who they viewed as being in the way. So there were there was a lot of community disruption in the Alston and North Brighton area when they built the, the turnpike. So the community paid a big price with loss of housing and disruption of the community. My grandmother lived in one of those houses. It was my first exposure to the brutality of the way transportation was being done at the time. Uh, and uh, But they also uh, took what had been a multi-track rail uh, system and reduced it to a single track uh, through Alston in you can imagine with a single track, you can either go in or you can go out, but you can't do both at the same time. So from the point of view of Western Mass, you know, Framingham, well, close to, you know, Framingham, Worcester, uh, they got very unreliable service, you know, condemned to be on a single track uh, with, with lots of disruption. Uh, from the point of view of Alston and Brighton, we used to have four stations serving us. Uh, one is now serving Regina Pizza in, in Austin, at the, the old Richardson building. It's a beautiful building. Uh, one at Market Street, one uh, down at Brook Street, and one in Newton Corner. Uh, so all four of those were lost. Uh, so in the historic sense, the, the railroad was uh, a railroad that served the urban communities as well as the suburban communities, and it serve them well. That was ripped out. Uh, So you had this 50-year gap in any kind of reasonable rail service. In the meanwhile, traffic has continued to grow, and the turnpike is operating beyond its practical capacity. Uh, So the traffic spills off of the turnpike, uh, particularly in Newton Corner, and it runs through Brighton and Alston at every available street. 
So the Alston and Brighton communities are paying the price again for the poor planning that was done 50 years ago because all that overflow traffic, and I'm not being anti-suburban here. My son, up until two days ago, lived in Wellesley. He's one of those suburbanites. But, you know, they're trapped on a congested road, so they, you know, they get off of it, which a sensible person does, and they run through all of the local streets in these communities. Uh, the turnpike is not going to get any bigger. Uh, but the economy is continuing to grow, thank God. There are more and more people trying to get to Kendall Square, to, uh, to downtown Boston, to the Seaport Innovation District. Uh, those aren't theoretical. Those are building permits already issued. Those commuters are coming, and, the, and there's no space for them on the turnpike. So the only way you can expand things is to add a West Station uh, as a regional uh, station that allows people from the West to get out of the train that goes to North Station and get onto a shuttle that goes from West Station to Kendall to North Station. Uh, that will give a lot of people from the West an option of getting to Kendall Square on public transportation. Trying to get from the west to Kendall Square by public transportation today is not something people choose to do because you end up at South Station and try to get on the red line and it's crowded and you're going all around Robin Hood's barn. We had data at MIT because every two years there's a full survey of MIT employees. Uh, people from Acton uh, use public transportation to come to MIT because they can take commuter rail to Porter transfer onto the red line, and they're at MIT. They're much more likely from Acton to use public transportation than people from Newton, because from Newton, there's no direct route. If you add West Station, it'll play the role that Porter Square plays for the northwest suburbs. It'll give, it'll give the, the Wellesleys and Framinghams and Newtons a, a, a chance to solve their commute problem without using their car. And that's the only way uh, there's going to be room on the turnpike because some people have to use their cars. Uh, it's just that there are too many of them right now and they're in each other's way. So the, the, the primary role of that is really regional and we could use it yesterday. Uh, Why are we stuck in a mentality of, um, in, in the present of needing to see proof of demand prior to building something, um, you know, the roads have already been um, laid out for that development um, around where West Station will be, um, but we're wanting to see some sort of proof before we build the transit. Well, I guess what I'm saying is uh, the proof is already there in Kendall Square. All you have to do is go count the building permits, uh, see how much development is already programmed in Kendall Square and in the Innovation District, observe the congestion in both places, and, you know, the, the solution is to give people, you can't just lecture people that they should use public transportation. You have to give them something that's comfortable. If, if you provide a good transfer point at West Station to a, to a two-track uh, service on the Grand Junction rail line that goes to Kendall and North Station, people will use that. And, and, that, uh, and, and the demand is there. It's not a theoretical thing. You could just sort of count the building permits. So uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't see any problem uh, identifying the demand for, for the West Station uh, 
as a transfer station. Now, eventually, when all the reconstruction is done, there'll also be new development that'll come in uh, on the land that Harvard owns. And that's a good thing because by that point in time, Kendall will have been built out. The innovation district will have been built out. Downtown is getting very full. And it becomes a new growth node for the city's economy to be able to continue to grow. Uh, but th that, that role is at least 10 years off because you have to rebuild all the roads first. And, and it's, it's not really feasible to predict real estate development 10 years from now. You can be through two up and down cycles between now and then. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm urging that we look not at the future demand, but at the demand that's identifiable right now in Kendall and the, the Innovation District. And there's plenty of people who need better options than being stuck on the turnpike. And that's a, it's also an issue that brings the communities together. That would help Cambridge, which is suffering from a lot of traffic going through the neighborhoods to get to Kendall, it would help, help Alston, help Brighton, help Newton. Uh, so those are and Brookline. Uh, so it's 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 kind of a win-win scenario, uh, and it certainly helps the people from Wellesley and Framingham uh, who are sort of stuck with bad options right now. So I think the next logical step, directly from what you were just talking about, is to talk about the seaport, uh, the innovation district, where we can see the demand for the next step of of um, of building and of improvements in transit. Um, we see the demand has already outstripped. Um, perhaps decades ahead of time, uh, what the projected, uh, you know, demands were. And there's, although we have talked about, you know, the possibility of, of things like um, converting the Silver Line to rail, um, which is a, a huge um, undertaking, um, there are, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the seaport that, that could be improved. Um, and just, was it yesterday or, or Tuesday, my days are getting confused already. Um, you know, there was the announcement that you know Amazon is adding you know two thousand jobs in, this, in in that district, and the agreement is that the the state is going to be contributing twenty million dollars towards uh, transportation improvements, um, which included I saw two point five million dollars for pedestrian and protected protected bike lanes on Summer Street, um, but no bus lanes or or corridors for buses on one of the widest uh, streets um, in, you know, the urbanized area of Boston. And I found that really surprising. 2.5 million could do that. And I thought, well, if, if you're not including um, priority for the, the buses that are running along there, you're not doing it right <laughs> in that two and a half million. And, but instead, we're having a whole conversation about spending $100 million on a aerial gondola to go over that traffic. Um, so there's that. There's the issue of, uh, you know, one of the Transit Matters members um, I saw posted that, that he had spent 13 minutes um, on the Silver Line doing the loop-de-loop -loop figure eight instead of just going down the ramp that's at the state police headquarters there um, at the entrance of the Ted Williams Tunnel. So there's, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. Why is it that we're not able to make that happen? Is that the state? Is it the city? What do you think, in your experience uh, in government and transportation, we could be doing to make those low-hanging fruit projects well, happen? Well, there, there, there are a couple of things. Sorry to keep going back to to yesterday, but uh, the the game plan for that uh, South Boston Seaport Innovation District uh, uh, was to include the Silver Line built in a manner to allow it to be converted 
to, uh, to light rail. Uh, the MBTA, when Mike Mulhern was there in the late 90s, early 2000s, had the project to extend the Silver Line from South Station under Essex Street uh, to connect to Chinatown Station on the Orange Line and Boylston Station on the Green Line and then curve around and give you and connect to the Silver Line to Dudley. In other words, the two disconnected Silver Line elements, the missing link was supposed to be added. He was making good progress on that and then the Romney administration pulled the plug on it and I think it was criminal because the you need more ways to get people into the innovation district. You also need more ways to handle the people once they're there. And right now, both, uh, both getting people to it and getting people kind of circulating, those are both problems now because of the way it's been handled. You also need the silver line to go under D Street with a grade separation. That, that intersection where the silver line uh, has a grade crossing uh, doesn't work, and it's not just it's D that it doesn't. Did I? Uh, yeah, I Street. meant D Street. D Street. I'm sorry if yeah, I said the wrong right. place. Yeah. But it's not just that it would be good for people on the on the Silver Line to have the underpass. D Street's a very important street, and the Silver Line intersection is like a quarter of a block from the Congress Street intersection. So it's it's both an auto and truck issue and uh, a transit issue, and that grade separation is needed. It should have been built as part of the big dig because the whole place was dug. There was a giant hole in the ground, and it could have been built right to begin with. Oddly, at the time, uh, Peter Zuck, who was at the big dig, wanted to do it and proposed to the MBTA and Massport that they divvy it up a third each and get it built. And very short-sighted people at the T, of all places, in Massport, and Massport's a major beneficiary because they own the real estate. It's not just getting people to Logan, but they also own a lot of that real estate. Uh, and th they wouldn't cooperate with Zuck. So it got built in this stupid manner with this at-grade crossing. You've got to fix that. Uh, now, the, the, the so-called state police ramp, uh, you can look it up. The environmental impact statement that approved the Silver Line connection to Logan shows that ramp being used. That's the way it was planned. It wasn't planned to go all around Robin Hood's bond the way it does today. So uh, people just have to get serious about it. And uh, if they, if they want to put in a fancy signal system to make sure that when the buses come in, there's some capacity uh, there and that you haven't filled it all up with cars, fine. You know, I mean, people are talking about you know, self-driving cars. <laughs> And, and they're acting like they can't figure out how to get a bus down a ramp and onto a highway. This is bizarre. Uh, so we just got to get out of this land of a thousand excuses mentality and say, we're going to fix these things. And I, I, I frankly think that the underpass at D Street is even more important. The, the, this, the state police ramp is annoying, and it, it's very visible because you're saying, why am I going around in circles here? Uh, but the... Uh, the lack of the grade separation, I think, uh, messes up a larger part of the area. The other thing you can do is, you know, I'm looking at the people who are proposing it, is you could put bus lanes onto Summer Street and you could run additional service 
that would connect uh, from, you know, through the Seaport District and over to Logan. Uh, there, there are lots of things you could do. There, there's also, and I'm, I'm hopeful because I, I, th- th- this is going to finally move. In 1970, uh, the, the, the Massport Enabling Act was amended to provide that Massport should have a presence at South Station. So you'd, you'd, you'd walk to where the bus terminal is, basically, and you'd be able to get an express bus right over to Logan and that there'd be some facilities to, to support uh, airport users because there's more luggage and stuff like that. Uh, so th- that's in the Massport's list of responsibilities. The space for them to do it is in the expansion of the, C- uh, of the, uh, of the bus terminal. Uh, the, the bus terminal, only half of the bus terminal was built uh, back in the 90s. The front half that's immediately adjacent to uh, where the concession area is for, for the rail system, th- that's programmed as part of the air rights development uh, that looks like it's about to move again. I think Stephanie Pollack is supportive of it. I think the Mayor Walsh is supportive of it. My understanding is that developers are getting ready to go and uh, I think they had a vote last week at the Fiscal Control Board to give the developer, they were supposed to have everything together by the 30th of April, and they gave them a little more time, but they're getting close. When that uh, additional bus terminal is built, uh, you'll have another very good way to get to Logan. Uh, So I, I think there are pieces that were part of the plan that were never implemented. It got slowed down. I mean, that, that, that bus terminal was supposed to be in the 90s. But it's finally coming. So I don't want to just complain about what didn't happen. I, I'm kind of optimistic that it's coming now. And the, the pieces are underway to make it a lot better than it is today. I think we are going to have to revisit uh, the, the conversion to light rail uh, and the extension so that the silver line connects to the silver line. But uh, but I think it's finally moving. The other big piece that I'm hoping is moving is the blue to red connector. So the idea was, I mean, we, I mean, especially Jim Aloisi, who grew up in East Boston, and I was manager of Little City Hall. It's not a secret that Logan Airport generates lots of people who are trying to come and go. And the idea was to have multiple ways to get there by public transportation because the, the, the roadway capacity is very finite. So the, the red-blue connector was supposed to be there both for the people of East Boston, Revere, and Winthrop, but also to get to Logan. Uh, the Silver Line was supposed to help with that. This uh, uh, a, a variant of Logan Express from South Station and the Logan Express is out in the suburbs, which uh, I... I quarrel with uh, Tom Glynn sometimes about uh, why doesn't Massport put some money and get the red-blue to happen, which I wish they would do. But in fairness to Tom, uh, he's restarted the expansion of the Logan Expresses out in the suburbs. So he stabilized the Braintree site, which they were in danger of losing. Uh, Massport now owns that real estate, and I think they expanded it. They did expand Framingham, I'm sure of that. So you, 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 with a growing airport, you have to provide a lot of different ways to get people to it, or it's going to gridlock, and it's gridlocking now. Uh, so I, I don't want to complain about 
it should have happened earlier. I, I want to be happy that it's finally happening now, and what do we do to expedite it? So I think, I think if we could get the grade separation at, at D Street, that would be an important building block. Getting the red-blue moving again, I'm very hopeful that we're going to see the Air Rights uh, bus garage expansion at, at South Station uh, with, a, with a Logan presence there. Uh, so I think it's going to get better. Uh, well, we, 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 share the, we share your optimism. Um, we've been talking a lot about um, reducing traffic congestion on these podcasts. We had Professor Mike Manvillo from UCLA who talked about road pricing as the only, in his view, the only proven and effective way to reduce congestion, that you have to price it. Um, Transit Matters has put out a, a vision report on regional rail as a way to rethink what we call commuter rail as a more regional system that operates not just at peak but off-peak, reverse all day long in very sort of frequent schedules as another way to induce modal shift. Um, what are your thoughts about the problem that we're clearly having in the region with tr chronic and unrelenting traffic congestion and strategies in the short term that we need to be thinking about pursuing to alleviate it. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm totally on board with the regional rail idea. Uh, we're very lucky to have such an extensive rail network, and we should be carrying three or four times as many people on it. And I think the regional rail... And we've seen them do it in London. It, it can be done. Uh, your articles have been terrific on the subject. I think we really need to do that. The problem I have with the road pricing people, I have several problems. Uh, all pricing does is decide who the lucky few are that get to use the limited capacity that's there. It leaves out a whole bunch of the population, generally those who can't pay as much. That's not fair, and people are going to resist that. We really, road pricing at some point may be part of the solution, but you have to have an attractive alternative for people to use other than driving mm -hmm. or you're just being unfair. Right. When, when uh, Ken Livingston, the, the mayor of London, did road pricing, and London is really the first real city. I mean, they did it in Singapore, but it's a, it's a different environment. But London is the first big city with complex political constituencies to have actually done a form of road pricing, the congestion pricing in the in the in the center of London, he he promised that he would spend every penny that he raised on improving the bus system. He did improve the bus system. He improved the rail system. The Victoria Line in London is getting better than two-minute frequencies. So there are lots of other places to get around London. So people didn't feel outraged when they were told, look, you know, you shouldn't take your car into the middle of the city, or if it's that important to you, you've got to pay extra. Right. But if you tell people, we're not going to give you any options, but by the way, we're going to hit you in the head with a big toll so only the rich people can go, everybody that isn't rich is going to be very angry, and they have a right to be. So I, I, I think the road pricing thing is, is out of sequence. We've got to be providing much better options for people to avoid the congestion. Second thing on road pricing is the, the, the cordon system that they have in London is conceptually simple. And it was pretty difficult to implement. They did a good job, but it took a lot of work to implement it. The idea of doing network pricing, where every link on the, on the system 
has a price, mm-hmm. uh, and the economists want to make it more complicated by letting the price vary so it's higher during rush hours than off right. I think they make it more complicated than it ought to be because I think there's a limit to what people are going to understand. And if people just feel like they're being handed a bill that they didn't know they were getting that changed on them because they were there at the wrong time, that's going to generate anger too. So you got you have two things with, with congestion pricing. One is a, a political problem and one is a technical problem. The technical problem is relatively straightforward with the code and it's much more complex with a network. Uh, we've got one of the best experts in the world on this stuff, Moshe Ben-Akiva at MIT. I went down to see Moshe just last week, and I said, Moshe, I know you're working in Singapore. I think Singapore will be the first place on earth to do this because they do complicated things and their politics are different. They're able to do these things. Are they running any experiments? When are you going to see something real? He says, I think we may be able to do something in five or six years. That's five or six years in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So we were having a discussion as if, oh, we just don't have the political will. We could do it next week. We don't know how to do it technically, and we certainly don't know how to do it politically in this country. So, But I think the key uh, stumbling block politically is what are the alternatives you're going to give people who aren't going to fit on the roadway system? Right. And that's what you guys do. That's what Transit Matters is all about, is providing those alternatives. So I think another thing we can talk about, especially as we, as, as Mass, Massport, MassDOT, MBTA, have all embarked upon or are currently in different long-range planning processes, um, one of the future-slash-present um, phenomena we see on the roads today is um, the transportation network companies, the Ubers, the Lyfts, who mm-hmm. quickly have gone from a nascent emerging um, idea um, to actual congestion on the streets. There is, in a lot of circles, this idea, um, I think especially amongst um, politicians, elect, you know, elected officials um, and appointed officials, that, well, we should probably sit on our hands and, and see how this plays out because maybe we don't need to build out our transit infrastructure and maybe it'll take care of it. We're getting lots of data now that is showing us um, how many trips are being generated, how many additional um, uh, deadhead trips are being generated, how many additional uh, miles traveled are being generated, and geometrically the issue of the additional cars on the road surface um, and and the numbers of people who are, you know, Transit ridership is increasing, but there's a lot of people who are still um, being being siphoned off of transit onto um, these transportation network companies, which isn't really is, – is adding more um, congestion, causing issues with buses, things like that. So kind of a two-part question. How do we deal with the current – what was thought of as a future issue but is quickly becoming a current issue of these emerging technology companies um, driving cars and – the long-range planning um, that has to incorporate this issue as well as a host of others? Well, first of all, I'm glad you're looking at this because I think it's a terrible problem. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised that these network companies cause more congestion, not less. I I, I can't believe when I read articles that say, oh, this is going to solve things. Uh, To the degree that they're attracting people out of buses where they're traveling 40-plus per bus, into cars where they're traveling three people per car, you shouldn't be surprised that they're causing congestion. And now the evidence is in, and 
you know, people to document that, yeah, they are causing congestion. So that's a big problem. Uh, and the only answer to that is more transit. So the idea that let's wait, the, 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 the network companies aren't part of the solution. They're part of the problem, and they're going to make the problem worse. So I think it should increase the urgency to get the public transportation working better. Secondly, uh, the network companies are growing for two reasons. I mean, it's not like they're the evil empire. Uh, they're growing because the cab companies that used to provide a similar service were so poorly regulated in an anti-consumer way that, you know, the, the Lyfts and Ubers simply offered a much better service, so people gravitated to the, more, to the better service. And by the way, the taxi cab service, I, I refuse to use Uber for ideological reasons. Uh, and I try, when I have to, when I don't use public transportation to go to the airport, for example, I'll take a cab. The cab service is degraded under the competition from Uber. So they're really, they're not just hurting public transportation, they're, they're hurting the taxi industry, but they are totally unsustainable. They're getting about as big a subsidy as the MBTA, roughly two out of three dollars are not coming from the fare box. So what happens when Uber or Lyft says, you know, it's been great, but we're tired of subsidizing your ride, and we're leaving, and you leave the region holding a bag, a whole bunch of people who've become kind of dependent on this pretty convenient service in comparison to the taxi cab service we were used to. That's very fragile. There's no basis to believe that it's going to be there 10 years from now. Now, the, the futurists say, uh, and, and by the way, the reason I won't ride it is they don't provide benefits to their drivers. I'm totally offended at, at uh, their health, the health care for Uber drivers is being paid by you and me through our taxes because they're showing up. They're either showing up at the, at, at the uh, urgent care uh, spots in the hospitals. They've offloaded to society. It's not that the Uber driver doesn't need health care. It's that they're getting their health care one way or another from the public. So there are, there are explicit subsidies from the owners into that that I don't believe are going to continue over time. And there are hidden subsidies from society for the unpaid health care costs and the rest of it. Uh, and if the private and when the private investors decide why are we investing in a system that continues to cost a lot more money to run than we can get out of the fare box? If they say, okay, they're private, they have no obligation to stay in that business, they say, okay, we're out of here. Now what do you have? And the idea that you would suspend upgrading our transit system for this tenuous system that may not be here 10 years from now, I, I think would it's really a bad well, idea. I think another <clears throat> another issue there is um, sh shouldn't we acknowledge that our planning today and what we choose to do with our transportation system will affect the future outcomes as opposed to assuming that the outcomes will become known and then we can simply build for what those outcomes should be. Um, you know, yeah, but it, but it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, and that's providing much higher quality service uh, on the public transportation system. Just in the past, I, I use, mostly I use buses because I live in Brighton and I'm going to MIT and the, the convenient ways to get there, are, there's several different bus routes, but they're all buses. 
uh, often I cannot get on the bus. And there are people that say, oh, don't worry, the new fare collection system will let you get on the back door. Excuse me, I can't get on the front door, I can't get on the back door, the bus is full. I don't care what fare collection system you put in here, there's no room on the bus. You need to run more bus service. It's got to be more frequent and it's got to be more reliable. And probably you need some exclusive lanes past the hotspots, but you've got to make this system work better uh, today, you know, and in the short-term future so that people are going to Uber and Lyft in part because they're being driven away by poor bus service and, and, and very expensive cab service. They will continue to gravitate to Uber and Lyft because of the subsidized fares uh, and the great convenience of going from origin to destination, but they'll do so in less numbers if we had a better public transportation system. And if and when Uber and Lyft decide to leave, if we've use the time to improve the public transportation system. We'll have the capacity to handle those people. Uh, I think the idea of waiting is, is, is just a mistake. You have worked at the, at the city level and the state level. That issue, the very one you pointed out with buses on, on the streets being in congestion and needing more, more buses and perhaps dedicated lanes, that is at the junction of the state, the state level provided transportation service, the bus, and the public realm of the street belonging to the municipality. Um, do you put more onus on one or the other, or is it simply an interagency type of um, turf issue that needs to be dealt with? Well, uh, it, I, I think this is something that's happening that uh, I think it's a mistake to try to make it a blame game. Uh, more and more people are using bicycles. Contrary to the arguments of my friends who use bicycles all the time, they complicate the traffic system. They don't make it easier. So we had streets that were not working very well when a tiny number of people were using bicycles. More and more people are using bicycles now. That's making it more complicated. I'm not saying they should go away. And just, I'm certainly just don't. A fact. <laughs> they're a fact. And I don't believe that there should be a death penalty for riding a bicycle. We've got to figure out how to make the system work better. Uh, but it, it, we already had a system that was not functioning well. This is a new challenge, so we shouldn't be surprised that it's difficult to work it out. Uh, the interaction between buses, I go through Central Square almost every day in Cambridge, and Central Square is really scary because there's a bicycle lane painted that the buses have to cross, uh, and it's, it's, an, it's a nightmare. Uh, there needs to be a better way to program that space that's safe for people on bicycles, safe for people who are getting into and out of the buses. And we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, and, and that's going to take cooperation by both the city of Cambridge or city of Boston in other cases and, and the MBTA. But I, I don't... Uh, I think this is a relatively new problem uh, at least in its intensity. And uh, I think a lot of people are thinking about it now. There was a public meeting just last night uh, in the MIT area where the city of Cambridge has some ideas of how to reprogram the space on Massachusetts Avenue so that hopefully the buses and the bicycles and the automobiles can all work. But if you just think about the space in front of MIT, you got a cab stand there. The Ubers and the Lyfts all stop there. 
You've got trucks that have to make deliveries there. I buy my falafel sandwich there off the curb. You know, there's a lot going on in that street. And uh, it's a very complicated ecosystem. So it's not easy for the city of Cambridge to, to sort it out. They're, I mean, the good news is they're trying. They're, they're holding public meetings. They're discussing it. And, uh, you know, eventually they've got to get to, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it's impossible to imagine that, that everyone's going to be happy because it's so complicated. But no decision is, is worse than – a decision which isn't perfect is better than no decision at all because uh, it's, it's getting worse as it, as it stands. Well, um, we could talk for a long, long time with Fred Savucci about transportation issues uh, because um, of his knowledge, depth of knowledge and depth of experience. But sadly – uh, there are time limitations on every podcast, and we've reached that point. But I'd like to uh, to thank Fred for agreeing to do this two-part series. And we might, you know, the year is young, so maybe sometime <laughs> later in the year we'll find uh, a reason to follow up with you on some of these topics because I know a lot of people um, respect your point of view and want to hear your point of view, and we're hopeful that this is one way to, to help uh, broadcast that point of view to, to people who tune in to Commonwealth Magazine's podcast. Yeah, thank you, Fred, for being here. Um, thank you to, uh, to the listeners, and uh, we hope that you'll join us uh, next time for another episode of the podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much.